Hello and welcome to the Project Love podcast. I'm Selena Barker. And I'm Vicky Pavitt. In these podcasts, we explore what it takes to create a life, relationship and career you love. And not just one that looks good on the outside, but one that feels good on the inside. Hi there, it's Selena here today bringing you this week's podcast. And this one is a bit of a different one. It's a bit of an experiment in a way and unique to the guest who I had on the podcast for this episode, who is the wonderful Alyssa Rochelle from Vulnerable Podcast. If you haven't listened to her podcast, go and check it out on iTunes, subscribe. She is, for me, one of the people to watch this year and over the next few years. I really can see her taking us to some really beautiful and deep and important places through her podcast. And I can see that podcast just rapidly growing in popularity, which in part is why I wanted to get her onto the Project Love podcast to talk to us about the Vulnerable podcast and why she began it. And I first heard her in her episode with Lucy Sheridan talking about white supremacy and white privilege. And I loved her openness, her candidness, the way she was raw and real and really spoke from a depth and a connectedness that basically had me hooked and wanting more. Also, of course, I mean, over at Project Love, we are obsessed with the whole topic of vulnerability. So the fact that someone has actually taken that topic um, and created an entire podcast around vulnerability, I think is just so powerful and so exciting, actually. And I think there's no better person to do it than Rochelle. So I reached out to her after I'd heard the podcast and I just said, I would love to have you on our podcast. So we met up and we chatted and she shared a little bit about her personal story. And I kind of had an inkling that there was quite a big story under there and that she was very much on her own personal healing journey. And so we kind of arrived at the idea that she'd tell her story her whole story, her life story, for the first time on the Project Love podcast, embracing and demonstrating vulnerability in action. And it takes real courage because her story isn't an easy story. And for a long time, she swore that she would never share it and that she would take it to her deathbed. And she talks about that in the podcast So it is quite a long podcast, but I didn't want to cut it down. I wanted Rochelle to really be able to tell her story uncut because the most courageous thing any of us can do is share from the heart and just say it as it is. So thank you for joining us to create the space for Rochelle's story to be heard. And thank you, Rochelle, for having the courage and love to share it. So here you go. I have been waiting for such a long time and looking so forward to doing this podcast. Today, I am with the amazing Alyssa Rochelle, who I shall be calling Rochelle. Uh Yeah, from now on. (laughs) From the Vulnerable Podcast. And the first time I heard an episode with Rochelle was when you did an episode with Lucy Sheridan Mm -hmm. about white supremacy and white privilege. And it was such a powerful conversation. And I just felt like... The way you carried the conversation, the way you took it immediately, just going into deep inquiry and 
really creating a sense of connection mm -hmm. I was immediately hooked I was like I want more from this woman Aww. she's good she, and also and I really mean this I don't know where it is you're gonna go <laughs> but you're going places <sighs> and that really excites me I hope so you are <laughs> I know you are listen I'm a good talent spotter I okay. always okay. and I just thought so anyway I started to listen to more of your episodes and uh -huh. just the whole fact that it's the vulnerable podcast so that in itself uh -huh. like vulnerability is such a big part of what Project Love is all about. And it's, you know, anyone who's watched the Brene Brown mm -hmm. um, Power of Vulnerability TED Talk. Yeah. Um, it just really drives home the importance of us being vulnerable. Yeah. And we have to if we want to have real human connection. Mm -hmm. And so I feel with your podcast, that's something that you do with your guests and you do for your listeners. And I've listened to now podcasts about hypermasculinity, um, depression, mm -hmm. motherhood, all sorts of conversations. And so I wanted to talk to you today about the Vulnerable Podcast mm -hmm. and why you started it, why you wanted to do it. But also, I wanted to hear your story <laughs> because you weave little bits and pieces into your podcast into your episodes and I just thought I would love to create a platform create a space for you to tell your story whichever way you would like to thank you <laughs> thank you so much like I you do what you do and you and I don't do it for like I don't know. I don't do it for like the accolades type thing. I just like to, I want to have these types of conversations. Mm. So I've been thinking recently about like the amount of engagement we get on the podcast and we do have people like yourself and Lucy that consistently commenting. But I phoned my sister the other day. So you mentioned the depression and motherhood episode. Mm. And that's something that my sister has been through. And I called her and I just said, did you listen to the episode? And she was like, yeah. And I shared it with my friends and we cried and da, 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 da. And I was like, wow. So people are being impacted and, and they're connecting with it. And I'm not necessarily hearing it all the time. Mm. So just to hear that from yourself, um, it's amazing and humbling and it makes me want to cry. <laughs> <laughs> I hear stories from your guests who, it's, it's experiences I've never been through, mm -hmm. but, it's there's something that just I'm so grateful for it because I then I get so connected to another human being and another yeah. human experience. Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that I haven't had it. Your capacity for empathy grows yeah. because you hear their story and you're like, okay, I understand a little yeah. bit. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you're doing. This is what I mean. No, this is why your podcast is so important and yeah. so powerful. Mm -hmm. Think of your podcast as helping people cultivate that their capacity for empathy and mm -hmm. how much we need that right now yeah. in our world. What, so what, what drove you to start the Vulnerable Podcast? So you mentioned Brene Brown's Power of Vulnerability TED Talk. Mm -hmm. um, I saw that years ago um, when it first came out. And I remember just, I remember just being frozen at my desk, watching her talk and being like, oh my God, like... Everything that's coming out of her mouth. I think I was on the verge of tears. And I have to say, Vulnerability Podcast um, is really essentially for me to step into my vulnerabilities because I've always been an emotionally closed person and we'll get into why. Mm -hmm. um, so this was one of the first times when I couldn't stop the tears. I just couldn't stop them um, as I was listening to her. And then, I, and then I just listened to everything else. Her talks about shame and guilt. And I was like, this woman is like a fairy <laughs> what the hell um and yeah and it blew my mind that she could study study it on an academic level mm. um that she was combining like her love for emotion and connection and storytelling and academia at the same time because i felt like as a person who is 
always connected for whatever reason i'm always under like i always want to understand where people have come from or coming from mm. i feel like the spaces that i go into especially with work spaces i'm that person and people are like rochelle like you just you don't do that you don't need to connect to that person not, not, they're not saying that explicitly but it's kind of like the way how society moves is in disconnection um and you're made to feel like you're less intelligent if you want to live in that space and i actually mean like academic intelligence like why aren't you concerned with like atoms and the way how a sound board works or whatever else like why are you concerned with the way how people emote like because i don't know i just naturally was i have no i don't know why but anyways because she was able to connect the academia and that i was i think i led i was i'm was more drawn to that because um i knew it could be quantified as an official thing Mm. which is weird it's it's kind of problematic in itself in a way because it's kind of like why do you need that validation um in order to kind of be seen as a thought leader or whatever else but anyway so yeah so vulnerability podcast was started by um my my infatuation with Renee Brown um (laughs) and then what happened after that was I just noticed that because of the my type of personality and I have this thing I think people always have their thing and my thing is that people tell me everything so I'm that person that can get on a train and have the woman next to me talk about how she's just got divorced from her husband and da, 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 da. I've literally had people like break down on public transport to me like on a journey to and from Birmingham to London because literally like I'm like what the hell is going on um and my job requires me to get to those places with people so my job as um a pastoral lead in a school um is about young people telling me their stories so i can then implement support for them mm. um and my friends do <laughs> and so i don't know like you know the people say like you're a healer type thing i think naturally i was just that person so i'm hearing all of this conversation over and over and over again from different people that look nothing alike that have completely different backgrounds and they're saying the same thing and my thing is we're all saying the same thing can we talk to each other um and obviously that is really hard to do because it's an event or i don't know like how do you get people in the same space it's like the podcast is the easiest way Mm. um and i'm really grateful to lucy for coming on the podcast to introduce she introduced me to a complete new demographic that i would never naturally have been able to access yeah um and that has helped the conversation um further connect if that makes sense yeah um so yeah, that's basically it. It was it was just the case of I was having all these independent conversations on my journeys and day to day life, and I wanted to create a space where I could have them on a platform where anybody could listen. You could then share it. Yeah. So what is it that you would say then that you keep hearing people of all different backgrounds, all different kinds of people, saying over and over again the experience? Is it that experience of disconnect? What is it that you keep hearing people talking to you about? I think it's worthiness. I think a lot of people, doesn't matter where they're coming from. So say, for example, if it, is, it, is it a divorce? Is it um, the fact that you cannot conceive a child? Is it the fact that you, you're a young person that I work with and you have a body image issue? Like, what is it? It all stems from lack of worthiness mm. um, and people feeling that like they're not enough. Yeah. Um, so that was one, that was like an immediate connection, which is why I... Um, I focused on episodes like self-doubt and had people talk about like not only the reasons for their self-doubt and how that hap- how 
it was cultivated in them via their parents South Dow and their friends South Dow and all of this around them um they then got to talk a little bit about how they changed their mindset and saw themselves as worthy enough to kind of be like yeah worthy of abundance and stuff like that so so I think that the the main underlying for me has always been worthiness and I can mm. and I consistently hear it and I battle with worthiness myself mm. a lot um and I think on the connection thing I think for me hearing it all of the time makes me feel less crazy yeah so yeah like, exactly yeah that how many people are experiencing that so it's that whole thing and again Brene Brown also talks yeah. about this it's like oh my god it's not just me it's if not I, just me didn't she write a book called yeah, it's yeah. not just me yeah, 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 she did yeah oh Brene <laughs> she's just amazing um the other question I was going to ask then with Lucy introducing to a yeah. whole different demographic what who is that demographic then? it was white women essentially yeah um white women who reach like you reached out to me but women from australia just women from like places i have never been to or like like uh, mothers and like older women and just women that were just like we really want to have this conversation but we just mm. don't know how to yeah um and and I was like, what do they want with this little black girl? Seriously. That's <laughs> truthfully, that's what came out of my mouth. I found my friend, I was like, oh my God, do they know that I'm some little black girl? Like, seriously. But that's that's problematic in itself. But um, yeah, and and it hasn't gone away. Yeah. So they're still interested. Yeah. I'm not necessarily talking about race in every single episode. Um, so that is the demographic. And that did teach me something. That taught me worthiness again in a different way because you know um systemic racism and the way how society is set up kind of like innately makes i suppose black women believe that their voice isn't worthy mm. and there are so many times even at even at work when there are time after time after time when i've said something and i've brought something up and it's been ignored mm. or it's been fobbed off and then a white man said it and it's like, oh, we need to deal with this issue. And I'm like, I said that last year. Recently, I've actually just, an issue was brought up by email and I just forwarded everyone the email that I sent last year <laughs> saying the same. Because I was like, I don't care if this is petty, but like people need to see that I actually raised this. But I remember this in the world of work, which I was in. I was in the world of employment for about a year and a half. And I remember that experience with men yeah. and me being a woman. And another yeah. woman, my female boss saying, mm -hmm. this is how we need to do it. We give them the idea to the to the men also yeah. that are like, you know, direct to the company. We give them the idea and in about a month or two months, they will come up with the idea as if it was theirs and yeah. then it will go ahead. Yeah. And that is what happened. Yeah, yeah. And I was so horrified that we were just, you know, Allowing this, it this to is happen. the system <laughs> and this is how you have to work it. And I was just so like, horrible. goodbye. Yeah. I No, I'm yeah. not willing to be in that system. So I just completely checked out. But what I loved about your podcast with Lucy is that before I suppose I had felt like when it came to um, racism and, you know, white privilege, it was just like, my whole thing was like, but what can I do? Mm. And then after your podcast, it was like, okay, what what can I do? Yeah. It was far more like, there are things that I can do. And a big part of it was realizing you need to listen. Mm -hmm. Or really all you need to do. And I think maybe you even yeah. said that in just the listen. podcast. Just listen. Just listen. Just listen and don't, don't like over explain that my experience isn't because it's like the way how we all view the world and the way how we experience the world is completely different yeah. do you know what I mean um and so my experiences as a black woman from childhood from a little black girl to the 31 year old black woman that I am now has been consistent 
your voice isn't worthy you are not worthy da, 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 da. and so like well once again when i say when this demographic of older white women from all over the world started to connect with me it was it was i, I don't want to say validation because it's not validation it's more of a case of like maybe what i was thinking isn't necessarily true maybe people do want to listen and maybe maybe the people that do want to listen are people that are ready to listen mm. maybe it's like maybe my truth is only true in this space does that make sense yeah so like in a space where at work um or in spaces where people are not necessarily quote-unquote woke <laughs> then it's like it's a problem but it's not an issue every single place that i go into yeah um and maybe this is my purpose that was the second thing maybe this is my purpose maybe i'm maybe this is the way that i am heard maybe this is the way that other people are heard maybe this is the moment that mm-hmm. we begin mm-hmm. your personal story mm-hmm. you feel ready for it i do i have a can i i have a quote from yeah guess who <laughs> <laughs> come on brene brene brown um so yeah, so we've been trying to do this for a while and um, I, I wouldn't say like, uh, timing is everything, isn't it? It's mm. one of those things where timing is literally the key to everything. And as I was thinking um, the past week, I was like, you know, what do I say? I was thinking like, I'm a Virgo, like, do I write down notes? Cause I like to be over prepared for everything. I was like, Rochelle, you don't need to write down notes. This is what it is. We met before, yeah. I spoke to you. I was like, I love this girl's energy. It's amazing. Um, and then feelings of like shame started coming up because there's so much that I've been through that I've held on to for so long that we'll get into. And then I started reading um, The Gifts of Imperfection by Brené Brown. And there was this quote in the book that says, shame needs three things to grow out of control in our lives. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. When something shaming happens and we keep it locked up, it festers and it grows, it consumes us. We need to share our experience. Shame happens between people and it heals between people. If we can find someone who has earned the right to hear our story, we need to tell it. So you've earned the right. <laughs> I, am, Selena I, I really heard. am so honoured. Seriously. I, like, I couldn't think of any, like, of another space to have this conversation. So. Well, thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what was the question? I'm Where should we begin? <laughs> <laughs> Where should we begin? So, so my story, I am um, originally from Birmingham. Um, born in 1986, hold tight the 80s babies. <laughs> the people that try and claim the 80s I was born like four years, like I don't remember it. I remember the 90s. Um, and I was born in um, an area called Hansworth. In Bam- well, I'm from an area called Hansworth, which is quite an inner city, kind of like deprived area. Um, so just to kind of set the scene, it was very, very, very 90s, very Aaliyah, very brandy, very like hip hop. Like the one of my earliest memories um, was being in love with music, so in love, which is like why I kind of do what I'm doing. I, I do feel like music is a part of my thing, my core. Um, and being irritated before the internet was even a thing that I had to wait so long for music to get to the UK. <laughs> like, I remember that. Like, I remember, really? Yeah. Like, I remember, like, knowing that certain tracks were, like, um, like happening in America. Like, my cousins would tell me about, oh, this, this song just came out or whatever. And I'm just like, oh, we have to literally wait for it. I'm just trying to set the scene of how, like, <laughs> music was so influential in my life. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that was that thing. So I was proper into music and dance and stuff like that. But um, I remember I have it at this stage now, I have a, like a very kind of like fractured relationship with my mom. And I'm just trying to think about like the like examples of when those things started to happen. Um, 
I remember like being so into music and literally feeling like it was in my blood, like that kid on X Factor that's just like, it's in my blood. Like I was that kid. And saying to her, can I really, can I go to dance classes? And she was like, no. And I said, why? She goes, because you won't stay. You won't like it. You won't stay. And I was like, how does she know? Like I remember having that thing like, how do you know? But then once again, your voice isn't being heard. Mm -hmm. That was one of the first things. It's like, well, maybe she knows me more than I know me because she's my mom. Maybe she knows my desires more than I know my desires because she's older. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, There's loads of little things like that that used to happen um, consistently. Um, My dad wasn't there when I was growing up. So... Oh, there's so many places I could start. And so I, I apologise in advance if this is all higgledy-piggledy because as the memories are coming into my head, I'm just trying to piece, literally put a picture together. So um, so my mum is a devout Christian. She's always been. And when she got pregnant with me, she felt bad because she wasn't married. And I say devout Christian, she, I do think there's some mental health issues kind of like intertwined with her Christianity um, because of the way how she dealt with it and because of the way how she continues to deal with things. Um, so say for, so, what happened was she was in a church at the time and the church were like, this is, this is a sin. You can't, be, you can't be pregnant and not married. My dad was like, I'm not marrying you because why? He doesn't need to. Like I can, I can raise my child, but she was like, no. Um, God doesn't want you to be in my life if you're not going to marry me. And basically just kind of said to him, you need to leave. Like, just don't come around. You can't be around your child. Um, and then like, obviously this is all stories I've heard because they've told me this now. I've heard her story and I've heard his story. Um, and then he got a opportunity to go to New York and have a life. And he went and he's been there ever since. So I never had him around. But what I did have was a mum who was very kind of spiteful and manipulative around that. I remember like um, there was a time where rollerblades came out and everyone was rollerblading. And I wanted to rollerblade. And I remember my mum saying, ask your dad. Why don't you ask your dad? Knowing that, I didn't have access to the person, the dad. So it was just like, well, why was she so manipulative? Like, what? These little things. It's like, as a kid, you know it's wrong. You feel that that's wrong, that response is wrong. But at the same time, you have the cultural thing of, let me not say anything before she hits me. Let's not do that. Um, and knowing that you just can't say anything, like, you just have to be quiet. And then, see, so I think I learned over and over and over again that my voice wasn't worthy. Um, so yeah, so that's just kind of like an, I'll give one more example. So this is all pre-10, like I'm pre-10, yeah? Mm. Um, one more example. There used to be a, a trip that I used to go on every single year to Somerset. And I used to love it because um, my sister was too young to come with me. <laughs> so I used to go by myself and it was the best thing. We used to go to the law courts in Birmingham. The massive coach was there. All these kids used to get on the coach from all over Birmingham. And we used to drive to Somerset and we used to spend, I think it was like a week of just living in this like countryside. It was amazing. Um, and then the kids in the area and my sister became old enough to come. And that, that got on my nerves. And I remember sitting on the coach and the girl that lived downstairs in my in my block was sitting in front of me and she was crying because she was leaving her mom she was literally like sobbing bawling she had um a black bag so she could be like sick in it the coach hasn't left yet like (laughs) we're still we're still sitting outside the coach and i remember being embarrassed because um she was so upset other kids were so upset and i just wanted to go 
I just wanted to go and I remember like trying not to make eye contact with my mum because I was like if I look at her I'm gonna have to fake being sad and I just can't do it and I was angry because she was holding us up and I'm like as an adult when I reflect on that I'm like that's not that's not nice as a kid like you want to miss your mum but I'd never had that feeling where I wanted to miss her. So she established a, like a very, like a very real disconnect from the very beginning. I think from when she decided that she um, shouldn't be having me, she disconnected from me in the womb. And that connection has never been established till mm. today. Um, so yeah, so that's pretense. So we're doing all of that. And then, um, and then it gets to the age of around 11. I'd say around year seven. I think it's is year seven, eleven, or is it I like twelve? Know. I think around le- year seven, seventh grade. So, um, so she's still on her whole Christian journey. I I do believe that my mum went through a phase of trying to repent for her sins because I say she wasn't married with me, but she then got pregnant from my sister's dad and didn't marry him either. So she's just got this immense amount of judgment on her personal life and just hating herself. Um, that I do feel like she tried to repent in so many different ways. So this man um, kind of like came to her via my sister's dad and um, just paid, I think kind of like promised some kind of like salvation, yeah. that's the word, salvation um, of her soul. Um, and as a result of that, like it was very much so a cult. We basically ended up in a cult basically <laughs> and I can't remember whether I've mentioned this to you already no, no. so okay um, so yeah so because of this man and what he promised her spiritually mm. um, she was happy to once again sacrifice her children for this kind of like high five from God <laughs> I mean I can't think of it in any in, in other way yeah, yeah. basically she yeah. wants to be accepted by God and I think what she completely didn't realize is that she kind of you are like you're always accepted by the higher force like you are you're always you're you're not accepted by the people that are around you um but she wasn't she was seeing them as their authority yeah and not um so what happened with that is um we were in this kind of very small cult for like my whole school life so year seven to year 11 and i was sexually abused consistently um every day by this guy and it was hard because it was it's hard for because it was hard but it's hard because it's done in the name of god that's what makes it harder because you're you then have to reconcile like why am i so upset every day why am i so tearful why am i so why am i in so much pain and it's for god do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so i think um i think as a kid like i was really angry i was so angry I was so angry with God. And I used to, like, I wasn't, I couldn't be angry at home because I would have got beat, beaten or something in a different way. I was angry with other religious kids at school. So, like, it just sounds mean. And this girl, I've apologised to her since. Um, she says that she thought I bullied her. And I didn't bully, well, in my mind I didn't. But basically, she was a Jehovah Witness. And so she was an easy target for me to kind of have conversations about God. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because they're a sect of Christianity so they really like different things but it's the same thing but it's different it's just all strange but because of that I was like I need to I need to be able to have this conversation with someone who's in something that's different to Christianity like I am but not officially different because they have the same bible and I went back and forth with her um I, I remember I don't you probably don't remember this but 
in around year nine, so I would say 2001, um, there was a documentary that came out on Jehovah, um, paedophilia in the Jehovah Witness community on BBC Two. I remember it so clearly and I watched it like there were basically just, you know, um, allegations of like kids being sexually abused in, in the Jehovah Witness community. And I went to school the next day angry, ready to take down this girl and be like, what do you think about this documentary? Because I knew she would have watched it at home. And she was like, it's not true. And I was like, how do you know it's not true? And she said, because when, because no, you can't be a Jehovah Witness and be a paedophile. That's just not allowed. That was what she said. And then she said, um, also, if you do commit a sin, you have a group of like 11 elders who, um, who decide what punishment you should go through. Um, so she said there's like a group of 11 elders who um, like will say, oh, this person's been, they've been caught drinking because you're not allowed to drink or smoke or anything like that. This person's been caught drinking. What do we think should happen to this person, these 11 elders? And I clearly remember saying to her, but what if one of those 11 elders has sin? Then surely that whole conversation has some, uh, ask me like how I was having these conversations in your life. <laughs> I don't know. Like already, I was, I was, already getting to the thick of it. Like, let's get to the heart of this. Do you know situation. what I mean? But I think in that, I was trying to like understand what was happening in my own house. Of course. In a way. Yeah. So I was saying to her, but what happens if out of eleven people, like surely one of them has cheated on their wife, or one of them has done something wrong? So that whole conversation and that whole kind of like, um, that whole kind of like marker of truth is infiltrated. Surely. And she was just like, but no, if you're an Aldi, you can't, you can't be um, of sin, you can't have sin. And the, her shutdown made me even more angry. And so this is why I think she was like, she thinks I bullied her. Like when I saw her later on in life, I was just like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was going through this thing. Um, but like, yeah, that taught me that like, it was, it was more confusing because I was like, people like elders and leaders of churches and community are seen to be without sin and they hold a lot of sin um and i still yet hadn't identified what was happening to me as a sin it was very normal it happened for like five years it was literally my life every day like i didn't see it as something that wasn't normal mm. um so i didn't identify it as a sin so um so that all happened and god only knows how i got my gcse's um God only knows how, and I, let me say this, let me say this. So working in my current job, I have conversations with the kids all the time. And two weeks ago, a kid came up to me and she was just like, I just want to let you know that I'm having therapy just out of the blue. She's been trying to speak to me for a few days and I managed to sit down with her. She was like, I'm having therapy and a lot's coming up for me. And I didn't like, I have no idea what to do with all of this emotion. Like I was like, well, okay. She was like, right, um, she goes, I've been speaking to my therapist and they've been identifying some things that my mom has done to me, that she's been doing to me, that has made me emotionally disconnected and I didn't even know. And I'm like, is this girl weird in my life? Like, <laughs> how the, like these are 16 year old kids that are like, mm. that are in touch with themselves so much. So I was like, well, what do you mean? She was just like, well, I don't think I've ever been taught how to feel. So I have no feelings. And I didn't realise that I didn't have any feelings until I, start until I started having therapy. And she literally only came to tell me that because she wanted me to tell staff because she's like, I don't want to sit in a lesson and be completely disconnected and have them thinking I'm being rude because I literally don't know what to do with all of these thoughts that are happening in my head. Wow. And I was like, that's what happened to me. But what had happened to me was I was so emotionally disconnected from anything that in that five years of secondary education... Um, I didn't have any behavioural issues. 
I wasn't smelly. I didn't look unkept. I didn't look, there wasn't, there was nothing to indicate that I was um, a safeguarding issue essentially. Mm. And it's because I was so emotionally disconnected on a day-to-day basis. Like there was just nothing there. There was no, there was no fighting. There was no nothing. Does that make sense? Mm. So I do think sometimes like, how did that go unnoticed? Like, how did they not, how did all of the teaching staff and all of the safeguarding leads and nobody noticed what was going on? because we can be really good at putting on a mask. Yeah, and I was exceptionally amazing at it, like knowing, and I think part of it was because I knew that it wasn't a sin. I didn't know it was a sin. So in my mind, it was just normal. Mm. But there are, anyways, there are some things that I would have been like, hmm, how did that? But then, but saying that, my best friend at school at the time had like a 25 year old boyfriend when we were in year nine, who used to come and pick her up from school and nobody clocks that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of just like, but then I think I work in a school now, like would I clock? Well, why would I not just think that that person's a brother or something? Mm. Um, there were so many safeguarding issues that happen in schools every day. And we obviously do with what we can, but there's some things that you just don't know. And I, I don't know, I had to kind of then have a conversation with myself about not hating my old school for not picking up things because do you know what I mean yeah because I wasn't in a place where I was ready to kind of um have any type of conversation so that ended um at a point because my mom phoned the police after a bit after five years she phoned the police um and she has her own reasons as to why I still don't understand it because it was like she she was she was definitely aware of what was going on um she phoned the police. I then got angry because I was like, I'm confused. So just out of the blue, she called the police? I was, yeah, I was, I got taken from a lesson. I think it was just like, you can't go home tonight, Michelle. And I don't remember asking why. I remember kind of just being like, okay. Like, I think I just knew. And when we got home, the police had taken all of the computers away because obviously like paedophile, like child porn and that. Um, I don't know whether it was on, the, I don't know what was on the computer, but they took all the computers away and... I don't know, my memory gets a bit weird after that, to be mm. fair. I don't really remember what happened, but like, I never remember having like a social worker, but like, oh, I was just so angry. I was so angry, like all of my memory from like year 11, like during my exams and like until he went to prison, I just all he would be day. I don't really have like a stream of like memory that's like in chronological order. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um. So he then went to prison and I went to college. Um so interesting as well this is i went to college and i wanted to work with kids and i remember wanting to work with young kids young children like in primary schools i mean um nursery like being a nursery nurse and because i had all of my gcse's i literally didn't i only failed my maths i got all of them i remember presenting my results on um enrollment day and the lady saying you should really not be doing a b-tech you should do some a-levels and i was just like i don't know like i'm never at that stage in my life, I, w- I didn't quite, I literally was would do what anyone told me to do. Mm. Like I was still in that phase of just being like, okay. Like I just don't know why I was always like, okay. Anyways, um, so I picked them on the day. Wow. <laughs> I was just like, I'll do that, that, that and that. Dance, media, sociology and English literature. And which actually sounds like a perfect combination. combination. Yeah, it was cool. So you went from the gut, which yeah. is probably the best I like dance. Do. I liked English. I could do English. I was like, let me just do this. Um and media was just cool I thought I thought that's cool and then sociology was the wild card but that was the thing that changed my life mm. it changed my entire life I would sit in lecture after lecture and be mind blown by the way how society was constructed religion cult, cults killed me because I never knew 
that a cult was a cult until I went to college. Of course. I was like, what the f-? Do you remember like... um? He was like, this is a thing. <laughs> I was in a theatre. I'm like, okay, now I understand. 100%. Do you, um, do you, are you aware of like, the Waco incident? Um, yeah, I've just been watching the documentary. Right. Yeah. That's what he showed in the, in the class. I spent everything. I was on the edge of my seat, shaking. Like, this is... It wasn't that extreme, but it was. it was... It was the same type of mind control. Of course, yeah. The idea is that you follow somebody and that person is from God or they they just know everything and then you kill yourself in the end. If that's what they tell you to do, you do that. And my thing is with either Jonestown or the Waco incident when I've been watching documentaries is the people that made it out alive that still believe today. Um, And that blew my mind when they were interviewing people that still believe. But isn't that the ultimate kind of... Of disconnect that cults do so do so well because they are able to disconnect people yeah. from their feelings. And when you were saying, I don't know how how I could have been so just like malleable, just mm-hmm. like all right, I'll let someone else make decisions for me. Mm-hmm. If as a child you're being told, mm-hmm. no, you're like this, no, you don't want that, no, this mm-hmm. isn't how you feel, that's not what you want, no, mm-hmm. that's wrong, that's right. Not allowing you to express yourself and not mm-hmm. encouraging you to listen to yourself yeah. and actually telling you that no, you're not being listened to and you're not worthy to be listened to, mm-hmm. you're going to just shut yeah, that off. So, completely, but, And then gone. how are you going to supposed to make decisions? Well, I as can't. I don't have any <laughs> compass to help me make decisions anymore because I've shut it off, I will find someone to tell me what to do. Yeah. And the charismatic cult leader yeah. who's going to be feeding all this stuff is like, wow, yeah. I want this person yeah, yeah, to yeah. tell me everything I should do or just anyone who happens to be there in a position of authority. Yeah. And it's that, Basically. it's you know, finding that well, we'll get into that part, yeah. finding that reconnection again. Yeah. So sociology, as much as it was a wild card, that la- whoever that lady was who enrolled me, God bless you. Aww. Seriously. She changed my life. Oh, she I really did. That. So I then got my A-levels and then went on to um, study at university. Once again, still making poor decisions when it comes to choosing courses. <laughs> I chose sociology because I liked it. And I chose media and cultural studies because I thought it was a bit of media and a bit of culture. Yeah. I didn't actually read what it was. It's so bonkers to me, but I don't know how I don't know how I managed to sign up for a degree that I didn't really research. Anyways. <laughs> Sounds like the kind of thing I would have done. It's yeah. so random. So I remember sitting in my sociology lectures, loving it, and then going to media and culture. And it wasn't about culture in the way how I understand culture. It was about fine art. So we'd have to go to galleries and look oh, at art. I and- would have thought it was about just <laughs> culture. Just different cultures. Yeah, that's what okay. I thought. It was crazy. Yeah. But anyways, long story short, um, the summer of my first year at uni, I reconnected with my dad and then I he asked me to go to Jamaica to meet his family because I had never been in, around his family and spend time with him because I had never done that either. Um, got to Jamaica in July 2006 and fell ill in about a week with this thing called encephalitis, which is basically a viral infection to the brain. Um, And so you have this kind of like infected fluid that travels up your spine, infects your brain, inflates your brain, and then eventually kills you. But it all happens in like a week, right? Wow. Um, And this was the first time you'd met your dad? First time. Okay. First time. And got an immediate life-threatening virus that killed you in a week. That literally... So I remember... Being in Jamaica, obviously the food is amazing and stuff, and I love to eat, and I and I want to eat and I can't because I feel sick, like I feel nauseous the whole time. Um, 
and that pissed me off <laughs> I was like don't, like don't take food away from me like give me a headache but I want to eat do you know what I mean um, and then this headache got so bad so bad that I couldn't touch my face like it would kill me to like like put my head on a pillow it was so painful um, I didn't realise at the time that I had this thing and then I remember getting up at night to go to the toilet and um, washing my hands and looking into the mirror on top of the sink and then it just like disappearing in front of me and I collapsed. And I had to collapse a few times before that in the day, but that was the last time when I collapsed and everyone woke up at the, in, the, in the house at night and they were like, you're going to the doctors in the morning, like we have no idea what's going on with you. Um, and then when I got to the doctors, he was like, I think you have meningitis, so you need to go to the hospital. And I, with my emotionally disconnected self said to him so what does that mean I'm going to die then I was 19 <laughs> so like I was 19 and I was completely disconnected and I genuinely like it was a real question he looked at me and he was just like are you stupid you need to go like Jamaicans are very very harsh with their eyes <laughs> are you stupid you need to go straight to the hospital and I said to him is it possible um, for me to get a flight and go to the hospital in England and he was like if you get on that plane you will die mm. go to the hospital now and then within like I'd say 24 hours I was in a coma I was gone but I have to tell you this part of this story in the week that I was in Jamaica while I was ill um, I remember sitting on a beach and thinking about all of the trauma, the sexual trauma and everything that had happened to me and making a pact with myself in front of the ocean and everything that I would never tell anyone that I would bring it to my deathbed. Like I remember that thought very clearly. And then within why, a week I was on my you, deathbed. Why did you make that pact? Because I think that when you're, when I was sitting on the beach and I just could hear the ocean. Like you just go to a very spiritual space and it, and yeah. it brings up things for you. So it was just coming up. I was just feeling really sad about everything. And then I was like, it's done now. It's not happening anymore. He's in prison. I don't need to talk about this. So it was like drawing a line. Yeah. This is done. This is, this done. is over. I can now bury it. I can bury it. It's gone. You can have it. The ocean have it. I'm not dealing with this. I'm going to move on with my healthy life. And your body went, mm-hmm. And my no, body was like, I've got not, another plan for <laughs> you. We're not doing that. If you say that you want to go to your deathbed, let's go. <laughs> let's head there now. Let's go now. We've got about a week. That shit's crazy. Crazy. That thought's crazy because I have a few memories of Jamaica. I remember going to this hotel and swimming in the pool. I remember going to get food and not wanting to eat because I was sick. And I remember sitting on the beach. Like, for that whole I was there for a whole month I remember that and then all of my other memories are hospital memories so I don't remember like the day in and the day out of what we did mm. um, so yeah so then in the coma um, came out of the coma and when I was in the coma we're really getting deep this is literally my entire life story I'm loving it <laughs> when I was in the coma um, I came out of the coma and then my dad said to me that I told him everything in the space where you, your brain shuts down in stages from what I understand. So it's like you become unresponsive first. So I can talk to you and you can answer me, but you have no idea what's going on. Yeah. I have no mem no memory of any conversation I had in Almost that space. Almost like being hypnotized. Yeah, 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 yeah. you're yeah, yeah. under hypnosis yeah. and you're talking and you wake up and you're like... No, don't remember any of that. People, um, my friend who was there at the time, she told me about things that she would tell me, I don't remember anything. Um, so in that space, when I was like secluded in this private room because they still didn't know if I had some type of random tropical disease. Um, I was just telling him everything about everything that had ever happened to me. I, I think it was like a confessional. We have still not to this day, he has not told me what I told him 
but he had names of people he had incidents he, he was he was just told me everything he just told me that i had told him stuff and he was angry um <laughs> so i woke up and i was like wow like did i really say all of that um it just it's so interesting to me that i had to be in that space to say stuff like that's how that's how serious it was like i was prepared to hold on to it yeah and so i had to go to a space where i was so unresponsive like you say hypnotized to say anything it, yeah. that blows my mind even just saying it now but it also blows my mind when you hold it up next to the pact that you made mm-hmm. that I will keep this a secret to my deathbed mm-hmm. and then you're on your deathbed a week later and telling the whole story <laughs> to your father who you've just met for the first time in your life yeah you can't make this stuff up you cannot <laughs> you just can't um, so yeah so then so then he's angry because I think he's angry and he's guilty he's guilty because he mm. left me in the country with someone he thought could do better by me, my mum. Um, and he's angry at he, that he couldn't have done anything to stop it because he wasn't there. Mm. Um, so he's just dealing with all of that stuff. And I can say that now as the person who hosts one of the podcasts who understands things. But when I was 19, I was just like, this man's just really, really angry. And like, not keep him away from me because he wasn't angry towards me, but I could see that he couldn't manage what was happening. Mm. Um, I have to say I also couldn't walk at this point because my I don't know my legs just stopped working so I was like in this bed like not able to walk not able to do anything people feeding me it's just all mad um and then I remember he said to me so you're not going back to England because like what the fuck's going on in England there's no one there for you you can't go back there um, you're gonna have to come back to New York with me, and I was like, I don't know you. <laughs> I'm not coming. And I literally was like, I don't know you. Like, I'm not coming with you. And he was like, All right. Well, then you have to stay here in Jamaica with my mom. And I was like, No, <laughs> we would not be doing that. <laughs> I am sorry. Um, and so the the compromise was that I went back to Birmingham, but I stayed with my friend's mom instead of my my mom was never gonna take me in anyway. So I stayed with my friend's mom. And then literally, so that was, that was the summer. So I, oh, this is another thing. This is another powerful thing. I was in the hospital for about a month. So I came out of the coma and about, I had about three, two, three weeks. So my birthday is in September. So I've gone to Jamaica in July, spent the whole of August in hospital. And my birthday is the first week of September. So I'm like, I need to not be here for my birthday. I can't walk. I'm depressed. I'm I'm developing anxiety. It's my first memory of an anxiety attack was in the hospital bed in Jamaica. Mm. And I just can't be here. And I said to the doctor, do you think I'll be out for my birthday? And he was like, when is it? And I told him it was like September the 8th. And he was just like, girl. <laughs> he was like, do you know what you just went through? And I was like, yeah, but I do, but I just can't really be here. He was like, um, well, we'll just keep monitoring your bloods and we'll just see. And then I made another pact with myself that I would not be in that bed on my birthday um and he just discharged me on september the 5th which is crazy and i got the flight first flight first thing smoking as they say (laughs) and i was back in the uk on my birthday wow so like that was another memory that was another thing for me when i was just like if you can if you can think it and you believe it you can do anything um, but also I thought that but I didn't believe it it was so weird it's like I like these things were happening to me mm. and I was connecting dots but they were, I was connecting them so briefly and then letting them go yeah 
because it's like I can't dwell on that. So yeah. I did get back to the UK for my birthday. So yeah, so that was 2006. Um, and then I have never not been in education. Like I've only ever known study. Mm-hmm. So I took up at like a level one counselling course. Um, I would say so I came back in around September around January I literally started in January I started to walk again I had my Zimmer frame and then I had my walking stick um, and then I just remember like my legs were just not powerful enough to gather speed for ages like I was just walking slowly everywhere because I just couldn't I can barely run now to be fair but like I just didn't have the muscle to kind of gather any type of speed Um, and I was on incapacity benefit at this stage because I just couldn't do anything and so because of that um and then I moved out of my friend's house because I was just like I can't I just felt like a burden Mm. there's so many things that come into like having all of the the trauma that I have experienced in my life like having someone look after me is is also traumatic in its own way yeah do you know what I mean yeah um so I discharged myself from my friend's house and I got a um hostel I moved into the YMCA which is probably not the best idea around around January yeah, of 2007 and I then enrolled on a level one counselling course once again changed everything because it was like it was about active listening it was about do you know what I mean like mm. proper conversation yeah. and the teacher I think her name was Sharon or something like that she was hilarious um, so I did that for like I don't know what six weeks seven weeks it wasn't very long um, and then I got to a point when I was like I have to go to uni because I cannot live in the YMCA. I have no money. Where am I getting, like, what is my life? I have no support. And so I only went to uni to get a student loan to get out the house, to get out the YMCA. And I knew I could academically do it, yeah. but I was just like, I can't be here. So I enrolled on a, um, a youth work course in Leicester. It's all random. I could have gone to Birmingham. I could have just stayed in Birmingham, but <laughs> I went to Leicester, um, but I commuted to Leicester. Um, so anyway, so I got the student loan, literally as soon as it dropped, dropped a deposit on a house um, in Birmingham. And I moved into that house and then started university. And that was great because the whole time I was doing... Um, I was ill and going through all of these things. I was actually running a, dan- a dance company. So... <laughs> Oh my god! It sounds all crazy, but yeah, I was running this dance company. Hang on, what? Sorry, when did you start this dance company? I stand. I started the dance company around seventeen, so like first year of college. Um, and I started it with two other friends. The friend that I went to Jamaica with, whose mom's house I moved into, right? And um, another friend, and um, started it simply because we auditioned. I auditioned to get into a big dance company in Birmingham, and I didn't get in. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I'll just start my own. Um, and this, <laughs> and this lady um, had some funding from Connections. Remember Connections? Yeah. Um, to run a summer school, and she needed some dance teachers, and so she just gave me money. She was like. Um, here do this type thing it was it was looking at the youth work now and what it should be like it was awful the way how she set it up she literally just gave us like seven pound an hour and we had these kids for four weeks from 10 to 4 every day crazy ridiculous it's completely <laughs> bad it's so bad but I was just really excited because I was young um, and we taught them dance routines and then um, the end of it was that they were supposed to perform at carnival um, and then we didn't want to let them go at the end. So we just formed a dance company. Wow. We just like, okay, let's all be together then. Because it was just us three to begin with. And then we had like all of these kids that we used to meet. Everything was Saturday. Um, and, you know, make up dance routines and perform all over like the UK. It was just, it was a lot. But it taught me a lot about, so the whole podcast thing. Yeah. And how I've managed it. Like it's because I knew, 
like I had this social enterprise when I was 17 and we applied to funding and it was a lot was happening. But that is amazing because, you know, you're telling the story of the things that, that happened to you and then there's, and you know, how being told that you're getting that, that feeling mm-hmm. that you're not being listened to, that mm-hmm. you're not good enough, that you're not worthy to be listened to. Mm-hmm. And then there's a side of you that's just like, yeah. you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to start my own dance yeah, company. Yeah, you're going to do, do anyway. And I have to say, yeah, there's definitely a part of me that's like that, but it was carried and supported by these two girls who were so much more in my mind fierce than I was. It was almost like they were like... What would they say to that? I bet <laughs> they wouldn't say... I bet they wouldn't say, yeah, Rochelle's the sort of soft, shy one. Yeah, no, I don't know. Probably not. I, I just felt like they were so much more powerful than me at the time. But I think sometimes we don't realise how we are perceived in the world. No, even no, Even no. at that time. I'm, I'm that person. Kind <laughs> of, yeah. Um... I don't know, like, everything that I've been through has ha- has led me to where I am. I don't know if you can see that. It's like yeah. quite a, um, a clear thread of just, like, trauma, conversation, drive, like, loads of different things, and it's like, now I'm here. And so, um, in 2013, I hated my job at this stage. I had, I had graduated from uni. I was working as a mentor in a college in Birmingham, and... They were horrible to me. It was horrible working there. Mm. My friend was like, let's go on holiday to America. And I was like, cool. Um, And we decided we were going to go to the Essence Festival. I don't know if you know about the Essence Festival, but it's this massive R&B festival that happens once a year in New Orleans. Oh, wow. Crazy. Like, I don't know, like, sometimes I do things and it's like, oh, my God, did I actually do that? So she was like, cool, I'm going to speak to my travel agent, her family's travel agent. They booked it for us. And it's crazy. Like, it's like if if you're an artist, you're there. Like, the the year that we went, Beyonce performed, um, Brandy, Mary J. Blige, Joe Scott, Maxwell... LL Cool J like these are all on the same stage like it's crazy it's not wow. like some like headliner and then everyone else it's like and no. in New Orleans yeah 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 like it was just crazy so it was a whole weekend of um, performances at the Superdome and then you get like um, you get live talks it's the way how they do it. it's quite interesting so they will have like the um like lecture theatre style with like talks by people like Oprah she'll come in and she'll just do a talk like everybody who's anyone is there Oprah will do a talk at two o'clock on a Sunday and then they'll have like everyone who anyone who's anyone in the church industry will be just delivering a sermon and then you'll just have like radio shows happening and we just went like two young girls like what the hell is this like we've never been around such like magnitude of like the entertainment industry if that makes Mm. sense because it's like when things happen like festivals here it's like there's just the stage and that's the main act and then you'll have like someone doing henna over here with some wink (laughs) (laughs) it's just not oprah yeah yeah, it's not like you don't have to run away from beyonce because you want to go see oprah talk like that's just that's mind-boggling but anyway so um we did that and then we went to new york and on that journey i was like what am i going back to birmingham for why do I need to go back? Because mm. I have all of this debt. I have broken relationships. I hate everyone. The person who abused me is walking freely in the streets at this point. He's out of prison. Right. Um, I've bumped into him a few times. <gasps> not like I've run away. Like, I've, like I don't know if he's seen me or if he's not seen me, but I've seen him. And then mm. that makes me feel a bit sick. Um, it, so many bad memories. And I just don't need to be there. 
And so I sold it. I phoned my sister and I said, because she, you know, you give people your keys when you go away, just say, look after my house type thing. We were there for like three weeks. I phoned her and I said, can you please sell everything that I own? I'm coming back to Birmingham, but I'm literally going to hand my keys back to the landlord and I'm just going to go. And then I did. I literally came back and my, my flat was empty and I handed the keys back. And I went on this meditation retreat because <laughs> my life is that random so there's this thing called Brahma Kumari so I don't know if you've heard of that I have heard of that yeah, yeah. they have meditation retreats in Oxford and they have like centres around the whole world and they do this thing every year for 18 to 35 year olds where you can just go and connect with yourself and in like for free they give you food or the monks and that they cook for you it's just all really lovely and I and I got rid of all my stuff I had the biggest suitcase in the world and sometimes when I when I see the people from the retreat they remember my suitcase but <laughs> it was like a massive suitcase and it was because I was moving from Birmingham stopping off in Oxford to this little meditation retreat and then coming to London wow <laughs> so did that that was a really good like stop off for me to kind of just connect and then I got to London and I've just been trying <laughs> again since then, but um, mm. to kind of establish myself, you know, working a job here that I didn't really like. And having people like, I want to say this because I do think it's important. Um, I worked at a college in Bromley and um, there was some one the my manager started a rumor about me. And the rumor was really, 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 really stupid. It was very petty. And it was um, that I can't go back to Birmingham because I start, I had some beef or something. Like She just made it all up. It's a silly yeah, joke, yeah. yeah. And it's just an example of how people really like that type of thing. And I remember thinking about it. She was like 65. Like She was a grandma. She was one of those types of people that's always saying, oh, I'm leaving anyway. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm leaving anyway type person. But she's been here for like 25 years. Like, <laughs> And like when she started that rumour and someone came to me and was like, is everything okay in Birmingham? And I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't it be? She's like, oh, because, you know, she says you can't go back. And I'm like, this is not the space that I want to live in. I don't want to mm. live in a space where I'm entertained by that type of conversation or I start that type of conversation because as non-invasive um, as you think it might be or it's a small, tiny little lie, mm. it says a lot about your character and a lot about the type of thing that you're willing to entertain and the fact that you're you would rather start a rumor than actually connect with a person to actually find out the real reasons truth is i would have never told her all of this anyway but it was just like you could have just you could have just asked me yeah um i never addressed it with her because there's no point but i just remember thinking right i don't need to be in this space and i think the biggest thing that has kept me safe and sane um throughout the years is finding spaces that I feel safe in. Yeah. Yeah. Because I never felt safe ever. Yeah. And I look at my friends now and the people that I have around me and I feel blessed every single day. And I do believe that, that I have been sent this like group of amazing people mm-hmm. um, because I, I lack in so many other ways in terms of like family and stuff like that. Um, but it's it's imperative to me to be around people who I'm able to connect with and be my raw self it's like yeah. I can't I can no longer hide that because I hid it for so long it made me sick mm. and I see and when I see people hiding it I um <laughs> there's a concern but then there's also the realization of they're not to, like Rochelle you had to go to your deathbed to deal with that stuff they're gonna need to go through whatever they're gonna need to go through mm. in order to kind of connect um so there's a space that I like I have to kind of like be open enough to hold space for them while they're not prepared to do the work 
and hope that they do and they will get to that space and then be there afterwards kind of thing yeah. but then I make that choice for myself so the the, I, the choice that I make is the boundary if that makes sense what do you mean when you're around someone who has potential in any kind mm. of way you see that potential and they don't right mm. so it's a, that's how potential works I suppose when you see potential in someone and they don't see it right so it's like okay you have the potential to um feel this way or to um be able to connect to, it, to your emotions in this way and you have all of that and I can see it and I know that you can't but the boundary that I'm going to have for myself is knowing that even though I know that you can do that I can invest in you by holding space for you yeah. knowing that you may not ever get to that space and so the boundary for myself is yeah the boundary or the managing my expectations is knowing that the people that I choose to be around me may not ever get to the space that I need them to be in for me and that's yeah. crazy in itself because it's like what is that <laughs> they need to be in a space for themselves but I know that our relationship will be 10 times better if they if they could get there for themselves so we could be in in a just an open and honest kind of like whole living space together mm. um so the boundary is or the I suppose it's a boundary and it's part boundary and it's part managing expectations is knowing that that person may never get there yeah um and I think that's just how I live. I, I, I genuinely think that's how I live with everyone. It doesn't matter how much I love them. There's parts of them that I know that will only ever get there when they need to. Yeah. But the commitment is to love that person anyway. Yeah. Um, and that is the boundary for myself. So I think I think it's about knowing that you you will do whatever work you need to do for yourself and holding space for other people. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And it sounds like it's interesting because now it kind of, what it sounds like you are have always been very good at following when it comes to following your heart mm -hmm. is going this is not the place for me mm -hmm. this is where i need to be right now yeah or this is not the place for me i'm going to try here yeah so even after that whole you know you're in jamaica mm -hmm. and your dad's like i want to protect you come with me to new york no <laughs> and considering you've let, let a woman who doesn't even know you tell yeah. you you need to do a levels and you're like all right yeah yeah and then he's like right we'll stay here in jamaica with your grandma yeah. No. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The fact that it sounds to me that in all of this, knowing where, finding those safe spaces, mm -hmm. and just and that has been the key mm -hmm. to you, considering all that the, the trauma that you've been through from mm -hmm. such an early age, that's there's got to be something that you've been doing that has been helping you to flourish. Yeah. Into onto the path you're on today, and you're still on that healing journey right yeah and so it's trying to work it out and that but that's what's also great is that <clears throat> you're turning up you know you're doing the vulnerable podcast mm -hmm. and sharing these stories while still on your own mm -hmm. healing journey rather than waiting till yes i think i'm yeah i think i'm done i think and i'm now done I share my story. it's, it's so like, crazy though could you say that and i'm like yeah that's true but at the same time with the gym <laughs> it's like i'm waiting for x y and z to be in place before i can go <laughs> it's just like <laughs> why does it apply to one part of my life and not the other type thing it's just really I weird i think that's the way though i think there are areas <laughs> in our life where we're just like we make good choices like yeah. with your career you're just you're Whereas there can be other areas, and this is that's how it was for me, mm -hmm. relationship. Mm -hmm. I was making really good choices, really following my heart when it came, and really healthily when it came to my career. Mm -hmm. And then with my choices in relationship, it was just, yeah. just I don't know where it was going, but it was definitely not going in a good direction for a mm -hmm. long time. Mm -hmm. And then finally I was like, right, we need to recalibrate this area of my life. Yeah. But I think it just sounds that you create, 
you seek out space yeah that you can flourish in but you also create that for others yeah it's like you're the queen of creating space holding yeah. space mm-hmm. and within that space allowing people to be exactly where they are without yeah. judgment yeah meet people where they're at yeah yeah meeting people where they're at it's but so that's important. what and that's what i found i know going back to i mean there's many episodes that i've loved but that episode with lucy about white supremacy and white privilege it felt like we were able to be in there people of of all colors mm-hmm. being able to have that conversation mm-hmm. because there was a, there was that space of allowance mm-hmm. it was like this is this is where we're at Mm-hmm. This is where we're at as a society. Yeah. Rather than judge it, make it bad and wrong, and we, look to blame people. Let's just talk about let's it. Let's just talk do about something it. about from it. Like, let's it just like yeah. Let's yes. just talk about it from a space of like not wanting to, like you say, from listening. Let's just listen to each other. And I, and I, I don't know if I said this to you before, but I never met Lucy before that. Like I literally DM'd her. I was like, "Do you want to talk about this?" And she was like, "Yeah." Um, and then my thing was just like, "I hope she doesn't come thinking that I'm gonna ambush her." Yeah. Um, you said it in the episode, actually. Did I? Yeah, you said all of that in the episode. It was such a big thing to me, like, yeah. um, because I knew that's not what I was gonna do. But yeah, she also said, "Well, if even if you did, like, you kind of would have had a right to." That's what she, she would, said. Do you know what? Lisa's the kind of person <laughs> that would have been up for that. She yeah. Been, like. Let's have, let's have this conversation. So, like, cause, because her role in that was to listen. Yeah. All oh, right, so interesting. Yeah. And, and I'm there, I'm like looking at the sky right now because I'm just thinking to myself, like there is no, there is no ending. It's, it's a continuation of just like trying to work out um, how to hold more space for myself. Mm. Um, and my newest thing, or what the thing that I've been dealing with mostly this year is compassion um, for myself because like I think I shared something on Instagram the other day about um, being 30 and not being married and all this and that's never been with all the things I've been through marriage has been the last thing I've been thinking about but I have got to a space where I'm like if my life sometimes I think if my life had been normal if I had normal parents if I had this if I had that I would have had a deposit for a house I would have bought a house I would have just been like more of an adult and so the compassion for myself is is your life was not set up in the same way as like I say everybody else's, but what is, who is everybody else? Like, it just wasn't set up in, in that way for you to have those things, but look at what you do have mm. and be patient with yourself because you're going to be wherever you need to be. Like, that's going to happen. And also there's plenty of people who did have a healthy upbringing yeah. and are at that age and are like, <laughs> what the hell am I got there either? It's <laughs> like, because that's... And and why do you need to? Yeah, I mean that's a ho- that's for a whole different podcast. It is completely different podcast. But yeah, that compassion of just kind of like um, being able to hold space for yourself because you're saying right, I can you know create safe spaces for other people and hold space for them. But like, I'm really trying at this stage of my life to really have that for myself. So mm-hmm. a massive part of what I do is journal whenever there's a thought or a shift. Like I write it down, um, so, and that has helped me a lot. Yeah, because also in that you are being heard by yourself mm-hmm. you are giving yourself that space to be heard mm-hmm. and to express yourself mm-hmm. and to give that love and respect yeah because that's the thing when we become adults however you want to interpret that mm-hmm. as being but when you become adults it is about recognizing that you can now give yourself mm-hmm. the the things you didn't get as a child mm-hmm. so yeah reparenting your inner child yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and becoming that inner parent mm-hmm. as well as being the inner child and being suddenly realizing you can be all of it yeah and and giving yourself the space to heal yeah because that takes 
takes the time that it needs to take. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and not you don't need to put a time frame on it. Just no. let that happen. No, <laughs> exactly. Do you know what I mean? Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. How does it feel? I don't know. I feel a bit exposed. Yeah. But I don't know. I just feel like, I just think it's time. Yeah. I, just, I really just think it's time for me to just be like, have it. It's not mine. Like, take it away from me. Like, I don't, I don't want to, the same way how I made that pack to keep it to myself, I'm making a pack to not now. Yeah. Like, it's like, like 12 years later. Like, to own your story. To own my story. Mm. Um, because it doesn't make me weird like I thought it did. It makes you courageous and it makes yeah. you inspiring. And grateful that you, in sharing your story, and this goes for everyone, but particularly when you have a story, a traumatic story, mm-hmm. in sharing it, you create the space yeah. for others who've been through similar, different, but other kinds of trauma mm-hmm. to also go, okay, to not have to have shame around it. Yeah. Because you're telling the story without the shame, without the judgment. Mm-hmm. And also, it's by telling your story, it's a bit like with the, the Goodbye Hello journal. It's like you've told your story up until today. So and now the, going forward. There's more. <laughs> what's the next pact? Where oh. do you want it? Where do you, where would you, yeah, what are you working towards now? Where would you love to see the Vulnerable podcast or yourself? Going? I would love to see, I'd love to the Vulnerable podcast to what, again create conversation for vulnerability but in like in all communities to be accessible to everybody like everybody can benefit from being provided with the tools to have these types of conversations so i'd love to see it as a platform um workshops events you know talks but like really trying to get into communities um and i say communities i feel like everybody could benefit from it like i don't feel like it's a thing that's yeah. only beneficial for one type of person it's beneficial for everyone for everybody yeah literally it's not where you're from and i think that's what i hear with you is you create a space that everyone is welcome yeah and so keep doing it thank you i'm so excited Selena. to see where you go and thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for having, like, literally, thank you for creating the space for me to share. We're seriously. Space, we're space creators. Space creators. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. You've been listening to the Project Love podcast show. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're feeling stuck in your love life and finding dating to be frustrating and exhausting, then come and join Get Ready for Love, our 30-day online course to transform your love life. As well as having us, Selena and Vicky, as your co-pilots throughout your journey, bringing you a lesson every day and videos and audio tutorials bursting with energy and love, you'll also be welcomed into our private Facebook group, The Love Zone, where you can hang out with like-minded women and ask for help and guidance whenever you need it. It really is gorgeous in there. Head over to loveprojectlove.com forward slash get dash ready dash for dash love to sign up. And if you'd like to find out more about love coaching with me, Vicky, then head to coaching and courses over on loveprojectlove.com.